And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. You untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who went silently away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And he said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And he was drawing near already on the way down of the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day that things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone to another in you, upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The word of the Lord. Oh, good morning again. Uh, just want to say, uh, encourage you that uh, with this, that uh, when we uh, thought about uh, maybe doing an Easter egg hunt and a, maybe a picnic after the Easter service, uh, this was several weeks ago, uh, we were looking at the weather, and at that time, the weather forecast looked like it was traject- the trajectory was getting warmer at the time. And so we thought, okay, we can do this, and maybe we can have a backup plan if necessary, if it's, if it's too cold. Uh, the good news is, is every day since then, uh, the expected temperature has actually gone up. And right now, the, temp- the, the temperature projection for next Sunday, Easter Sunday, is 61 degrees. And partly sunny skies. So... It's only gotten better since we initially thought maybe we could try this for Easter. So we're going to continue to pray that that is the trajectory that uh, God intends for his weather pattern to be here in Madison. Uh, And in the meantime, uh, once again, as I have for each week for the last few Sundays, uh, just want to encourage and challenge you one last time uh, that you might consider uh, inviting someone who may not be currently part of a community of faith. Uh, and as I have, I have uh, said, uh, that particular sermon um, will be very much um, cognizant of uh, and um, desiring to communicate, according to Paul, uh, a reasonableness for why the resurrection, bodily resurrection of Jesus is, in fact, the best explanation for what happened in first century Palestine. Um, it matters for Paul. He says, he says that the resurrection did not happen. Your faith is in vain. You're still in your sins. And it matters for someone who might be considering the faith because a bodily resurrection of a human being uh, is difficult to wrap your mind around. So uh, just to kind of give you a preview of that sermon, um, but by way of challenging and encourage you, 
um, perhaps extend an invitation. You may get a no, um, but you might want to just say, listen, if you stick around afterwards, there's going to be mimosas served at a picnic at the park, so you can stick around for that. So um, that may be enticing enough. But anyway, uh, this is the final 40th day of Lent, Palm Sunday. As Jack's already said, the beginning of Passion Week. And so we are going to uh, take a two-week divergence from the Beatitudes, as you've already heard the scripture read from Luke 19. And so uh, as we uh, jump into this text, uh, will you pray with me one more time uh, and ask for God's presence with us now? Jesus, we do ask that uh, you would be present with us. Uh, it, is, it is certainly not us, the person speaking into the mic right now, that we ultimately need to hear from. It is you. If you truly are uh, the one with words of eternal life, um, we pray that we might uh, connect and hear from you today. So I ask, as the one speaking in the mic, that you might speak through me, around me, in spite of me, whatever's necessary, but speak to us through your Holy Spirit that we might know, that we might have a sense that, yes, we have actually interacted with the eternal God, even in this place this morning, through this passage of Scripture. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, um, in this country... Uh, as you know, uh, we don't we don't do kings. <laughs> That's not our thing, or queens, or monarchs of any kind. Uh, as Americans, our DNA is saturated with resistance to any one person, any one unit, any one group, any one powered uh, party to have all the power. We can rule ourselves. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, thrones. And monarchs and needing a champion to fight on our behalf uh, is just for previous generations who weren't quite as enlightened as we are today. All the fairy tales of the Brothers Grimm, Hans Christian Andersen are simply old-fashioned leftovers of a more naive time in the history of humanity. We're grown up now. We don't need kings. <laughs> and yet, and yet, we still make movies about the Lord of the Rings. And yet, the Game of Thrones captivated America's attention for eight seasons. <laughs> and a sequel, The House of Dragons, has recently been released. And yet... Fantasy literature filled with kings and dragons and great battles continue to be bestsellers. And in fact, did you know that, I didn't know until I was preparing for the sermon, that post-pandemic in 2021, sales of fantasy literature rose by 45% post-pandemic. And although Harry Potter isn't a king, he serves as a champion for others in a way that monarchs do for their people in fantasy literature. And the Harry Potter series has sold more copies of almost any other books that's ever been published, over 500 million copies. Why? 
Why would that be the case? I think many theologians would make the case that it's because there's actually something even deeper in our DNA as human beings than a resistance to kings that demonstrates it's really our resistance to our experience of bad kings and of being under the reign or authority of bad leadership in general. And that deep down in our souls, because we are creating the image of God and still retain that image as much as it's been marred by sin, we still long to know and experience life under the reign of a genuinely good, benevolent, champion, king, monarch on our behalf. One who conquers all that continues to ravage our lives. One that conquers all that keeps us from fully experiencing life as human beings as we were created to experience it. Both the enemies within us and in our own hearts, our own sin, and those forces outside of ourselves in the world. Now hold that thought for a few moments. Put a pin in that. We come to a very familiar passage here this morning on Palm Sunday. Very familiar passage. It's the passage that's been dubbed the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And had we been reading through Luke, we would have seen that Jesus has been traveling through throughout Palestine, demonstrating and teaching that the kingdom of God was coming and, in fact, was here with him. And that God was doing a new thing through his life and ministry. And that after years of God's people, Israel, not receiving a prophetic word from the Lord Yahweh, he is now fully indwelling Jesus of Nazareth. But there came a point in, according to Luke, in chapter 9, verse 51, when we read this. When the days drew near for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And since then, Jesus has been making his way intentionally to the capital of Israel, to the city of David, to where the temple of Yahweh has stood for centuries, even without his spirit presence, for 400 years. And right before verse 51 in chapter 9, right before that, Jesus tells his disciples that the Son of Man is about to be delivered up into the hands of men. But the disciples aren't sure what to make of that. And in fact, don't press him for an explanation, Luke tells us. My sense is kind of similar to how we might have a hunch of some bad news but just don't really want to engage it. Put it off as long as I have to before I have to deal with that. But nevertheless, apparently Jesus' ministry is coming to its climax here in Jerusalem. And Jesus is resolute about getting there. And in this passage, he's finally actually drawing near to the outskirts of. He's in the suburbs, so to speak, of Jerusalem. 
And we can therefore expect, as he's on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem, that everything Jesus is going to do now, going forward, will be acutely and poignantly connected to and demonstrative of and illustrative of his ultimate mission. So why is this called a triumphal entry? Jesus is here declaring and demonstrating that he does, in fact, consider himself to be the long-awaited messianic king that Israel has longed for, that Israel has prayed for, that Israel has waited for, they have lived and died waiting for. But up until this point, Jesus has been more or less generally pretty subtle about his ministry and his mission. From time to time, yes, he has said and done things that has caused a reaction of consternation by the religious leaders. There have been a few times. He's offered forgiveness of sins, something that only God does. He's healed on the Sabbath and subsequently called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Something that only Yahweh, the creator, the creator of all things, could rightfully be called the Lord of the Sabbath. He's declared that the great prophecies of Isaiah about the day of the Lord, the great year of Jubilee, when God would fully redeem his people, was here and now with his arrival. But those jolting moments to this point have been limited. And often he was much more likely instructing people who had been recipients of his kingdom coming, demonstrating power and of his acts to not yet publicize who he was or what he was doing. But now, Jesus is no longer concerned about concealing his full and ultimate identity. And now Luke tells us here, As he got closer to Jerusalem, his disciples, and not just the immediate 12, but the crowds of those who are now following him into Jerusalem, they now line the streets. And they acknowledge this procession into the capital. And they're quoting Psalm 118, according to Luke, by saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In other words, if I may, combining the titles of a couple of works of fantasy, this is the return of the once and future king. That's what this is. And the religious leaders recognize what's happening. And looking on, seeing this, certainly likely more in tune with the prophetic proclamations that are going up now more than anyone else here, they don't react well to the scene. And in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, if I may paraphrase Jesus of Nazareth humbly, 
how can I quiet these cries of my father's image bearers longing for deliverance from sin and its consequences in this world? I'm initiating a cosmic spiritual shift in the universe through what I'm doing and about to do that is so seismic that even these inanimate objects like rocks could not be contained to respond. In fact, as Paul tells us in Romans 8, all creation has been groaning, longing for the coming of this Messiah and for his ultimate fulfillment of why he came in the first place. But there is at least a mixed understanding of what the return of this king will mean. You see, the people wanted saving. But most of the people wanted saving from the Romans. They wanted saving from high taxation, don't we all? From being exiles in their own land. From oppression. The Romans were not nice to the people of Israel to put it subtly. But Jesus isn't coming. He's not arriving on the scene as king to stir up a military revolt and militantly overthrow the Romans. But not because Jesus doesn't care about such things. It's not that Jesus was oblivious to and indifferent to the oppression that his people were experiencing under the hand of oppressive monarchs and dictators. After all, we see in this passage that right before Jesus alludes to the events that will happen in AD 70, when the people of Israel do try to take matters into their own hands militarily, there is a messianic figure there leading them, trying to militarily overthrow Rome. It gets squashed. It's violent. It's ugly. Before Jesus alludes to what's coming, in verse 41, it says that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. The king, the once and future king, weeps for his people. There are, in fact, two recordings of Jesus weeping. Do you remember the other one? Before the tomb of Lazarus. As he comes, his, his friend, his cousin, Lazarus, has died. Martha and Mary tell him, if you had been here a little earlier, you could have saved him. And when Jesus gets to the tomb, he doesn't, knowing what he's about to do, doesn't forego the human genuine feeling of seeing and experiencing the brokenness, the ultimate fallenness of this world, human death. And when he comes to the tomb of Lazarus, he weeps. He weeps. And this week, King Jesus wept. He wept. Maybe you wept this week. Jesus this week wept 
Because he gets us. And he cares profoundly for the plight of his people. But he also knew that full salvation must come in a different way. He didn't deny that his people needed a king. And he didn't deny that he was their rightful king. And in fact, this morning, he doesn't deny and in fact makes the claim for all of us that he is our true rightful king. He makes claim over me that he is my true rightful king. And so now we're back to where I asked you to put a pin in it. Because you and I, we may react and went to the idea of a king, having a king, someone claiming that type of standing over us. They have the power. And again, as Americans, we don't need kings. We rule ourselves. But I would make the case that we still have a longing deep down in our souls to grant allegiance to something, to someone. And every one of us in this room right now, whether we have formally crowned or coronated someone or something in our life, every one of us is serving something, someone. Every one of us has a need for something in our life to give us meaning and significance. It might be a political or sociological cause. And so much of our identity might be caught up in defending or promoting a certain cause. It could be a very good cause. It might be a relationship. It might be a job or a career. It's not a question of if we will grant our allegiance to something and live for something, hoping that that will bring us life. It's a matter of what? And if you're here this morning and it's not obviously clear who might be competing or what might be competing for Jesus' lordship right now, consider what it is right now that were you not to realize it, not to get it, not to have it, would cause tremendous frustration, maybe even desperation. Or come at it another way. In your downtime, when I recognize with all the social media and the access that we have all the time to communication, it's not very often that you and I have downtime <laughs> where we're alone in our thoughts. <laughs> but if you ever have those moments, where do your thoughts go? What are you, where are those thoughts, what are those thoughts obsessing over? It's just possible that there you might understand What's competing for your ultimate allegiance? Rebecca Pippert says this, Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance by others is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. And the Bible would 
back that up and make the case that you and I, we were all designed to give our allegiance to someone. But all the other things, short of the one true king that we would look to for meeting, were never designed to provide that ultimate fulfillment. Cannot provide it. Because the true king is unlike any other king or lord or master that has ever lived or ever will live. And we see it highlighted in this text. In verses 30 and 31, Jesus tells two of his disciples, go, <clears throat> excuse me, go into that village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it, bring it, to, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, whereas all four gospel writers include this narrative, Jesus' triumphal entry in their accounts, and whereas all four gospel writers mention a donkey as the mode of transportation that Jesus is going to use, Matthew and John go even further and cite an Old Testament prophet. They cite in Zechariah 9.9 that the prophet prophesying a day when David's heir, Israel's rightful king, would return with Yahweh's blessing and sit on the throne and rule after the righteous rule of Yahweh. And this is how it's described in Zechariah 9, what his reign will look like. When that day comes, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And for you also, because of the blood, my blood covenant I have with you, I will set your prisoners free. Today I declare that I will restore you double. And then Yahweh, the Lord, will appear over them. The Lord of hosts will protect them. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. That sounds like a party. <laughs> that sounds like any great story about a king returning. But right in the midst of all that description is a description of the manner in which he will return. And had you heard the description that a king is coming, like I just read, this big party, a festival that's going to happen as he comes back. Wouldn't you have imagined a king riding in on this great, majestic steed, a warrior horse, sparkling with jewels or fine gold? This is what the prophet Zechariah says. How, this is how he describes his coming. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble. Mounted on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. The foal of a donkey? Seriously? That's the best you got, Jesus? And, and one that's never been ridden, in fact, we're told. If I'm a disciple, 
And I'm catching on here what Jesus is about to do. This is a big moment <laughs> in our ministry. Let's blow this thing out. Jesus, you know a, a, a beast of burden like this that's never been ridden before is <laughs> probably not the best choice <laughs> to use in this moment. You'll have no idea what to expect. And a donkey? Seriously? As the theologian D.A. Carson observes on this, in the midst of this excited crowd, an unbroken young animal remains completely calm. Why? Because he's under the hands of the one who calms the very seas. Jesus is not about to put on a display of military power. Because Jesus' path to victory and to his coronation is the way of defeat. It's the way of vulnerability. It's the way of the cross. And he is so intent on following that humble path to be unique in his kingship that when Peter thinks, that, thinks the same thing that any of us likely would have, would have responded to Jesus, Jesus, we will protect you from the cross. You won't have to go there. Jesus took that as a direct temptation from the originator of all temptation and evil and lies and brokenness in this world and said, get behind me, Satan. And that's why I would make the case why Jesus is worthy of your allegiance and my allegiance as Lord and King. Because he dies for us. He goes to the cross. He takes on all of our sin and rebellion. All the ways that our heart is postured in a way to try to dislodge ourselves away from God. To do our own thing. As well as all the rest of the sin and evil and brokenness and death. He takes that all upon himself. In a grand cosmic event that we will engage on Good Friday and do something that you and I could have never done for ourselves. And so, yes, this is Jesus acknowledging that he is the long-awaited king. But it's also just as important to him to demonstrate the type of king that he is. And it reminds me of Revelation 5 that I know y'all studied a year ago. But Revelation 5, there's this great scene, if you'll recall, before the cosmic throne. And there's a scroll there. It's, 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 it's sealed. It's essentially the destiny of all humanity, the entire cosmos. But it's sealed. It's designed to be open and read specifically and executed, the decrees inside, by someone in particular. Only somebody who is worthy to open the scroll. <laughs> And John asks, so who, who would be worthy to open the scroll? And if you recall, there is silence. Silence throughout the universe. As, G, as, as John is wanting to know, who can open this scroll? Who can tell us? Who can execute our ultimate destiny? Ensure that we will be okay. And John writes this <laughs> in the midst of the silence. I began to weep loudly 
because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look into it. And that weeping that John engages there is the weeping that you and I also know. On a smaller scale, yes, but still genuinely in our own life, when our hearts cry out and we ache deep within and ask, God, where are you? And in the midst of John's weeping, we continue to read in verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. But to his surprise, when John turns to look at this lion who has conquered, do you remember what he sees? (laughs) He sees a lamb. A lamb. And not just any lamb. Certainly not a cute, cuddly little lamb. But a lamb that had been slaughtered. Sacrificed. That's what John sees. That is the one who is worthy to come to the throne, to open the scroll, to bring his reign of justice and goodness into your life, ultimately throughout the entire world. And that's how Jesus is worthy to break the scroll. That's how he's worthy to execute God's good order. He conquers through his defeat, through his humility, through the cross. He's the king. Who is the king of glory? (laughs) The king that rides to his coronation on a young, unbroken donkey. (laughs) He's the lion. He's the lamb. He's the king of glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for this, your word. We admit we we often are with John that we look around at circumstances in this life that are difficult and complex and, and saddening and even maddening at times. And we weep and we cry out to you. Help us to receive the answer that the one actually who does conquer, the one who is worthy, is the conquering lion, is the lamb. The one who is worthy to to receive our full allegiance over every aspect of our life, as scary as a prospect as that is, is the one who rides towards his coronation, not on some war horse, but on a donkey. Because Jesus, you prove to us that your love is that great, that deep for us, that you are willing to give up of yourself that we might know true life and know true life under the reign of a good and benevolent and just king. Give us the faith to believe that's 
who you are. And that's the type of king that you are. Perhaps for the first time, or maybe the thousandth time, but help us to give us the faith to believe that this morning. For Christ's sake, amen.